Hello everyone, welcome to this edition of the Talking Pharmacy podcast, where we look back at what's been happening in pharmacy over the last week. My name is Richard Thomas, I'm the editor of Pharmacy Magazine. Joining me on the pod this week, we have Rob Darricott, editor of P3 Pharmacy, Arthur Walsh, editor of Pharmacy Network News, and Neil Trainus, editor of Independent Community Pharmacist. So, uh, a lot of reaction to last week's pod, in particular our discussion about reclassifying oral contraceptives from POM to P. Uh, there's a public consultation uh, going on from the MHRA at the moment, as we know. Um, split opinion, I think it's fair to say, with a lot of comment about affordability and inequalities in access to contraception, and uh, some people shocked at those abortion figures as well. But plenty of support for this switch too. Anyway, it's a, an interesting debate and you can check out some of our listeners' views uh, on my social. So, later uh, in this week's pod, we're going to be talking about antimicrobial stewardship with pharmacist Michael Maguire. But let's start now with Good Week, Bad Week. Okay, Arthur, um, Good Week then. Who have you got for us? Cheers, Richard. Um, Well, I spoke this week with Professor Julia Riley. She's head of um, palliative medicine at the Royal Marsden Hospital in London. And she's really keen to reach out to community pharmacists for their support with what I think a really great scheme she's involved with. It's called Coordinate My Care. It's been running for around 10 years and it's hosted by the Marsden. And it it gathers a patient's urgent care details, so, so that uh, medics and clinicians can have read and write access to that detail, such as their diagnosis, their medications, uh, interventions that have been made, um, kind of contacts like next of kin and so on, and also, you know, their desires, such as whether they would wish to be resuscit- resuscitated in such and such a circumstance. Um, so, yeah, so clinicians and emergency workers have read and write access. They're able to see all the updates, and um, it sort of pulls all the... Uh, that really vital information together in 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 one sort of uh, easy to access place. And now, but but um, what Professor Riley told me is that um, she views community pharmacists as the last and very important part of that puzzle, um, because pharmacists have such um, regular face to face interaction with patients, because their role is becoming you know increasingly clinical with things like um, the discharge medicine services, which is ju- just launched. And they'll be making sort of more and more interventions with patients with um, uh, long-term conditions. I should, I should add that it's not just um, palliative patients. It's uh, any patient with a long-term condition can have a, a, a CMC record. Um, but, um, but yeah, but things like that, like the increasing clinical role and also pharmacists, just, they just have such oversight of people's medicines. So it's sort of, uh, to me anyway, it makes sense to for pharmacists to get involved with this. It's running in london at the moment is about um 130,000 patients but it's been rolled out to cornwall and they hope to, to roll it out to other parts of the uk um soon um and it achieves really i think really um impressive results um uh, professor riley told me that um 90 percent of people would prefer to die at home which you know makes sense but nationwide, it's forty percent, forty-seven percent of people actually die in hospitals. Um, but when when patients have one of these CMC record, that drops to twenty percent. So, you know, a, a drop of more than half of people, or more, an increase of, of more than half in the, in the people who have their, you know, their their dying wishes re- respected and um, and and not just respected, sort of implemented. Um, so it's uh, a really great scheme, I think. 
um, and pharmacists can um, access the training on the website and they can um, ask for cards to give out to patients in the pharmacy so they know about the service. I think one thing she wasn't entirely sure about is whether um, uh, pharmacist IT software will have the exact same interoperability as, as GPs, as in you know whether the, um, the CMC tab will just appear on, on, on the software. But I mean, I think definitely worth exploring for any pharmacist, particularly in London and, and soon, soon to be Cornwall. That sounds a, a terrific scheme. So very impressive results there, Arthur, weren't they? I mean, you know, IT, um, IT glitches perhaps you know, will need to be looked at going, going forward. There's nothing new there. But uh, yeah, that Coordinate My Care scheme sounds really good. And, and they obviously see pharmacists as being key in, in implementing this type of service by the sound of it. Yeah, absolutely. She she was really keen to stress that they're you know the last part of the puzzle, and um, yeah, just because they have that sort of regular interaction with patients, it it, it makes sense. Yeah, it does. Rob, uh, that sounds uh, a, a really good scheme, doesn't it? What did what did you make of it? I think that's a really nice piece, Arthur. Uh, you know, uh, this is this is what we should be talking more about this this sort of thing, and that that connectivity to to people particularly at the end of the journey you know and pharmacy is often at the end of the the end of the supply chain or the end of that and you know very very close to their patients and their communities and i have to say you know that that thing about um, people wanting to die at home certainly resonates with me having experienced both somebody dying in hospital and somebody dying at home literally 12 hours after they got home from hospital uh, i know which one um, i prefer but no a really nice story and i you know it's great to hear uh, somebody recognising community pharmacy can do something on this sort of thing, and I hope people um, follow it up. Absolutely, Rob, here, here to that. Thank you, Arthur. Um, Neil, who's had a good week for you? Uh, morning, Richard. Um, my good week uh, relates to something that's been quite uh, big in the news lately. That's the spate of contracts that have been handed out by the government for PPE. Um, now we all know that there's been a lack of transparency around this this entire issue. The government have come in for Stern criticism, and rightly so. Uh, details are lacking. They broke the law, of course, over the contracts. Um, but we heard from one uh, company um, that was handed a £40 million contract to supply PPE. Um, and they, uh, the company's called Medicine Box Limited, and they actually came quite forthright with, with a few details. So to, my, to my surprise, I, I didn't expect to hear back from them, from them, because these details tend to be you know, quite quite secretive and, and, and confidential ordinarily, but they were happy to, to provide some details. Medicine Box Limited, uh, by the way, has three pharmacists as direct as officers, um, and uh, they were handed a forty million pound contract in April on April the twenty fifth last year to protect to provide PPE, uh, which appears to be it was four million pieces of protective coveralls they were contracted to supply, which appears to be uh, at a cost of ten pounds per per item. Um, now, the contract um, was supposed to have been fulfilled by June the 1st last year. The company insists that they, they delivered the, the, the order by May the 31st, so ahead of schedule. That's what they said. Um, and they said they received the full 40 million, but half of which, the 20, 20 million of that, was a, a deposit um, upon signing the contract. So they were given 20 million pounds by the Department of Health on April the 25th or there or thereabouts uh, before the, uh, any work had been carried out. Um, now, now, they claim that it's standard practice it's, it, this happens all the time uh that's that's what medicine box uh, are suggesting um the department of health and social care have been very quiet on all of this of course we sent a freedom of information request to them 
listing a, a, a series of questions about this particular contract, um, and they didn't, and they well, they did respond, but they said uh, it would cost too much money and take too much time to respond. So we obviously went to the information information commissioner's office on this, and they they're still getting back to us. There's no there's no suggestion that anybody at Medicine Box has done anything wrong. We have to say that. Uh, and the reason I've put them in my good week is because they've been transparent. Or you know, they've, they've at least they've replied to our to, to our to, to our questions. They could have just ignored us. Um, the one thing that does the other thing that did strike me about this deal, as probably is the case with a lot of these other contracts, is that only one this contract, this particular contract, was put out was not put out to an open bidding process, uh, according to uh, Tenders Electronic Daily, which is a, a, a European procurement journal, which is quite a, 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 a um, reputable source of information, um, the Department of Health received one tender for this contract, and that is believed to have been Medicine Box Limited, uh, which I think in itself is quite problematic. And that's I think that's a, one of the central problems with, with all these contracts. Um, but nevertheless, you know, um, I, 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 people make up their own minds when they read these kind of stories. I think people might think, well, you know, one one bid doesn't look good, and um, and and you know, twenty million up front. Well, Medicine Box are claiming it's standard practice, but is it really? I mean, no, but we don't seem to know. Um, particularly at a time when this is, you know, the government was hemorrhaging money. April the twenty fifth, it was what was it, six weeks or so into the pandemic. Uh, it was planning for furlough. We even started furlough, I think, at that point, and um, uh, millions were being spent by the government. Twenty million up front. You know, there's a debate there, I think, and you know. I, 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 it could have gone into a bad week, but I put it into my good week simply because uh, Anne Ran Hu, Chen Yang Ma, and Xu Yan Yao, who are the three pharmacists registered with the General Pharmaceutical Council, uh, who are listed as officers of Medicine Box, they all well, didn't ignore us. Basically, they they came forward with uh, with some uh, with some answers. So for me, uh, as I say, people make up their own minds, but for me, I, I give Medicine Box some credit because they came forward. So Medicine Box for me. Yeah, Neil, good, good to get some clarity on at least one of these contracts. But you know, there's a lot, lot more to come out about all of this, as, as you've mentioned, and I think we're going to return to it later in in the podcast as well. So, okay, thanks for that, Neil. Rob, uh, what have you got for us? Good week. I've just got a little short here, Richard, actually. Uh... And a good week for pharmacy technicians and other pharmacy support staff who have been invited to join a panel set up to assess the effectiveness of personal protective equipment. I mean, it's a bit late, isn't it? But on the other hand, this online panel, which meets every month, is actually going to listen to some real life experience of um, pharmacy teams on the quality of the equipment that's been ordered through the government's PPE portal. So... Better late than never, but a nice uh, addition to the panel, I think. Definitely. Uh, it's good to, that pharmacy technicians have a, uh, have a voice or an input in all of this, because you say, Rob, they are the ones absolutely on, on the front line. Uh, what did you think of that story, Neil? Well, I, I just, it's an interesting story, and I think Rob's right. I think, you know, why, why it's taken this long for pharmacy technicians to be involved in this panel is, 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 is certainly needs to be questioned. But I, I, I hope the Department of Health actually take on board what's being said because feedback's really important. But given the Department of Health's track record with PPE, uh, the shambolic way that they've handled the orders and, and, and the lack of quality PPE down, and as you say, Richard, we'll come to, Matt, uh, we'll come to PPE a bit later. But, um, you know, the, the way that they've, the shambolic way that they've handled PPE all the way through this pandemic, I, I just hope that they actually take on board the views of pharmacists, pharmacists and their teams and pharmacy technicians you know, on the quality of PPE and what needs to be done better. 
yes, I, I agree. Let, let's hope they do take all of that on board. Yep, uh, agree with that totally. All right, thanks, Rob. I'm going to go for good week for Superdrug, which has become the first pharmacy group in the UK to launch a saliva-based PCR test for coronavirus that can be used at home. I think other brands of saliva-based tests are becoming available and pharmacies are beginning to to get into this. But we reported on the, the Superdrug uh, launch, reported the story this week. It costs £120. Uh, saliva-based, so designed to be less intrusive than standard PCR tests, which involves swab samples from your nose and your throat. Patients purchase the test kit, they spit into the tube provided, and post their sample off for testing, get the results within 24 to 36 hours. Uh, Superdrug doing this in partnership with a company called Chronomic. So it's interesting because we've talked throughout this pandemic about COVID testing and how confusing that we've all found the situation. Well, more clarity is beginning to emerge, I think. We had the GPHC changing its guidance on antibody testing in community pharmacies recently, and that followed a reversal uh, in the position of Public Health England. And now we have pharmacies like Superdrug and Boots and others getting into antigen testing. And I read that community pharmacies in several parts of the country are now providing lateral flow testing as part of local authority organised services, providing testing programmes for asymptomatic residents, key workers, high-risk groups, etc. Now, the government is really going to ramp up this kind of testing as we, we emerge from the pandemic. It's great to see pharmacies involved in this. And maybe another example of the pandemic convincing commissioners to see pharmacies as real and viable solutions to dealing with these local issues. But Superdrug taking a different route with this test. Uh, the company has done some really innovative things, I think, during this crisis. This is another example. And yeah, I think we're going to see a lot more of this saliva-based PCR testing available from community pharmacies, which is a good thing. Uh, but that's my good week. It's for Superdrug. So earlier this month, Pharmacy Magazine ran a live webcast on the role of community pharmacy in tackling antimicrobial resistance. We were joined by experts including Public Health England's antimicrobial resistance lead, Diane Asherodapa, to talk about the practical steps that pharmacy teams can take to carry out effective antimicrobial stewardship interventions in their pharmacy. I also chatted to pharmacist Michael Maguire, who designed and ran a service in which community pharmacy teams tackled inappropriate antibiotic prescribing in general practice, with impressive results. We're going to run a segment of that interview now. I started off by asking Mike to describe the service model. Yeah, that's right. We had a project uh, that we called the Reducing Antibiotic Prescribing Project, or RAP project, and we put a bid in for some funding to the Academic Health Sciences Network. And the project had threefold purpose, really. First of all, it was to try and reduce uh, antibiotic prescribing, or should I say inappropriate antibiotic prescribing. Also, we looked at reducing uh, workload for the GP and supporting them with time and capacity in the general practice. Uh, so they weren't seeing inappropriate patients that could easily be seen in the pharmacy. And then thirdly, it was really to give the patient a better experience and a more effective pathway, uh, both for those patients who didn't need antibiotics, but also crucially for those patients who did need antibiotics. We wanted to do something that was slick and easy and convenient for the patient as well. So they were the three purposes. 
And basically what we did is those people who phoned the general practice with a chesty cough asking for an appointment with the GP who potentially could go on and get antibiotics. And that was anecdotal from the GPs themselves. Uh, they were saying, well, yeah, we do prescribe a lot of antibiotics. And what we did was a reception team for those patients who were happy to go to the local community pharmacy. We sent them to the community pharmacy and had a, a sit-down consultation with the pharmacist in the private consultation room. Uh, they took a bit of history taking. We give the pharmacist a template to work off to rule out any sort of red flags or concerning symptoms. But what it also did was a CRP test, so C-reactive protein, which is a, a marker of inflammation that's produced in the liver in response to a stimulus. And what we found was, or what we expected was, those people who had a higher level of CRP, uh, those uh, potentially could have uh, a bacterial infection and potentially would need antibiotics. Those patients who had very low levels of CRP, less than 20, um, they had had a viral infection or no infection at all. So it was really interesting to see how that panned out. We got the GPs on board, we got the reception teams working with us to design the service. And it came out with some quite interesting comments, such as if a patient just gets sent to the pharmacy and they come out of the pharmacy with nothing, then they'll want to be going back to the uh, general practice to say, well, we demand something. So they actually suggested that we give something like simple linktus so that the patient would actually have something when they left the pharmacy if they weren't coming out with antibiotics. And that, I appreciate, sort of goes against the grain with the national direction of travel with things like simple linkers, but it was actually a really useful tool to satisfy patients in conjunction with the pharmacist's advice. So that worked really well. Um, what was the reaction of, of GPs to this? Well, what we did was we didn't want a pharmacy service that was a, a pharmacy service in isolation. So the first thing we did was speak to the GPs and get them on board with it, talk to them about the time and capacity, uh, how much workload they had. And they were all quite keen to share some of the inappropriate patients away from general practice if that could be done safely and effectively. So we talked them through the process, asked them for their thoughts on it, helped, got them to help design the service. And I'd say the reception team actually sat with the reception team at half eight on the morning when we're getting 100 to 200 calls by half past nine and actually sat with the team and listened to some of the calls they got so I could understand the challenges the reception team had practice faced and that was really useful as well just to have the headset on and listen to the sort of calls they got and as I say they helped design the service so we got total engagement and buy-in across the board which proved to be really useful. Now there's some evidence to suggest that that patients um, can be less satisfied in practices with more prudent antibiotic prescribing. Did you come across any of that? What was the kind of, how did patients yeah. service? That's right. Well, funnily enough, the GPs were saying exactly that themselves. They were saying anecdotally that if patients came in and the GP said, oh, I think you've just got a virus, you'll be fine. They'd go out with nothing and they'd be sort of feel like they were being fobbed off or shortchanged. Uh, what was really interesting about this project that we did was when I went and sat down with the pharmacist, I think A was a bit unusual, it was sort of a different circumstance, uh, but also because her pharmacist 
explained with clarity what would happen with the CRP test. And they said, if you're over 100, it's likely you will need antibiotics. If you're less than 20, you won't need anything. But if you're between 20 and 100, we'll get you back in three days' time and, and have a look at uh, your symptoms at that stage. And so the pharmacist and the patient together had no idea what result was going to come up. And it took about three minutes to get the reading on the machine. And when it came up with like less than five or whatever, the patient was quite accepting of that result. And it was almost like they actually believed that what the pharmacist was saying was true because they'd seen it in black and white on the machine and were quite happy to accept whatever direction and advice the pharmacist was going to get. So initially we were concerned, would patients accept it? But actually the patient feedback was really, really good. So it sounded like, um the quality of the consultation with patients kind of improved as well, maybe because it was done in a more structured way? Would, the, would that be fair to say? Absolutely. It was really important, we thought, that it wasn't left to just a pharmacist conversation with the patient to be a proper structure to it. And we actually had a template similar to sort of the CPCS idea where you'd go into farm outcomes and, and fill in the template and it'd be a structured series of questioning. And if there was any concerns with red flags, you could just press on the button on, on the laptop and it would come up with uh, sort of a nice um, clinical knowledge summaries, the same as an out-of-hours GP would get. And that helped with red flags. And so there was a proper structure, and I think that gives the GPs confidence in the process as well. Yeah, now remind me, Mike, what COVID came and kind of put a spanner in the works of this, didn't it? So, yes, um, because there was, was interest at uh, PCN level at like running larger scale trials from this, I, I recall. So uh, yeah. are you hopeful that it will be picked up when the COVID situation um, settles down? Yeah, well, unfortunately, COVID brought a halt to this surface last March. What we found, though, the results were pretty staggering because until it was halted, we'd um, channel shifted, as they call it, referred 123 patients from the general practice into the pharmacy. And of those 123 patients referred, only eight were referred back into see the GP. Uh, four of those eight were because of red flag symptoms, nothing really to do with the surface itself, just something that the pharmacist had picked up in consultation with the patient, which was really helpful. And then there was actually only four patients out of 123 that were shown to need antibiotics. Um, and that was something that the GPs found quite staggering, but also incredibly insightful to think, well, actually, thinking of the usual cases where the seeing patients day in, day out for antibiotics and just helping them to reflect on how many of these patients actually really do need antibiotics. And I think four, of 23, four out of 123 told its own story. So that was Mike McGuire there talking about uh, a really effective antibiotic intervention service through community pharmacy. At the webcast, community pharmacy's role in antimicrobial stewardship can be found on the Pharmacy Magazine website. Right, let's do Bad Week now, and I'll kick off. Bad Week for pharmacists reporting patient safety incidents, but uh, Rob's going to go into that uh, a little bit later on. So I'm going to go for Bad Week for pharmacies in deprived areas, which seem to be bearing the brunt of the closures that are rippling through the sector. And this was highlighted by Simon Dukes in his latest blog to contractors. 600 pharmacies closed since 2016 uh, when the cuts came in and, and 200 in the last year alone. 
and concerningly, it appears that about a third of these closures were in the most deprived areas. Now, this is a real concern because pharmacy is notable for what is effectively a reverse inverse care law, and it means that pharmacy funding cuts are leading directly to cuts in pharmacy services for poorer people. And this widening of health inequalities is hardly compatible, it seems to me, with the government's levelling up agenda. And Simon makes uh, a very good point over the coming months. We're going to need to deal with the impacts of long COVID, of health inequalities, as I mentioned, and the ongoing requirement for COVID vaccination, as well as everything else. So we will need every community pharmacy. The question is, is the government listening? Arthur, let's go to you. Who's had a bad week? Well, it comes around every year, but um, we've had the announcement this week that um, from April the 1st, prescription charges are going to rise by uh, 20p to 9.35. So that's um, a rise of £3.35 since 2000, which, but I think when you count for inflation, it's more like six quid. So uh, as I said, you know, this comes around every year and every year, uh, I think the pharmacy bodies are pretty unanimous in saying that this is sort of an unnecessary part, cost to patients who, a lot of whom may be just over the threshold not to qualify for free prescriptions. And also, you know, the, you had the PSNC coming out this week, Simon Jukes again, um, coming out and saying it's, you know, not not a good use of um, the pharmacy team's time, you know, especially given the pressures they're under with coronavirus this year. But, you know, in, in general, with the sort of more um, increasingly clinical role they're, they're, they're adopting, it's not... Um, uh, it's not a good use of their time to have them be sort of, you know, tax collectors or prescription police or whatever you want to call it. Um, yeah, so that's my my bad week. Yeah, that good call, Arthur. Why should contractors be unpaid tax collectors? Such a regressive tax, isn't it? It should be abolished. I mean, pharmacy bodies are united on that. I think there was a story I remember, as he was saying that, a while back, I think from Asthma UK, that said that three quarters of patients... Uh, who have to pay for prescriptions for, for their asthma, can't uh, struggle to, to afford to pay for them. And I think, you know, about half of them have actually had to cut back on medication because of the cost. So, yeah, really alarming figures. And, uh, yeah, it, it should be looked at. We, we, we don't need this tax. It, it's uh, We really don't. doesn't help anyone. Um, all right, Neil, what about you? Who's your bad week? Well, I'm probably going to get told off at this point for... Uh... My bad week because I was told not to not to mention this this, this person, but I, I I can't I can't not really. It's impossible not to mention Matt Hancock. The bad week I think he's had an appalling week, uh, yet another appalling week. But he's he surpassed himself this week because two reasons. There's probably more than two reasons I'm sure, but the two reasons that caught my eye. One, uh, he claimed this week that there was not a national shortage of PPE during the pandemic. Only local shortages. I think he described them as individual challenges in access to PPE. Utter garbage. Utter garbage. I mean, I, I, it, it, it is just absolutely offensive. Um, we all know that uh, there was a national shortage of PPE all over the country, uh, particularly, and, and including pharmacy teams suffering from a, a shortage of, of PPE, during the pan, uh, particularly during the early stages of the, of the pandemic. Um, and for him to say that there was not a national shortage is just beggar's belief. Utterly beggar's belief. Um, now, it, you know, we, I think Matt Hancock was actually shown pictures on, I think it was Good Morning Britain, of, uh, of doctors wearing plastic bags um, and, N and NHS workers wearing bin bags. Uh, but that seemed to go over his head. I mean, it, 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 unbelievable. Um, 
And the second reason is because he wanted, he, he demanded that he and his team at the Department of Health be thanked, thanked for the job they've done. We should be thanked. We've done a marvellous job. 130,000 plus deaths in this country from COVID-19, the worst death toll, the worst death toll in Europe. Um, now, when this was pointed out to him, uh, it, it was sorry, it was pointed out to him that this was a, a repulsively offensive remark to the families of, of, of those dead, uh, that, 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 that he and his team should be thanked for the job they've done. Um, I didn't think he could outdo himself. He certainly has this week. Um, and he's even made Gavin Williamson look credible this week by comparison. Uh, Gavin Williamson, Williamson um, surprisingly faced Piers Morgan this week again for the second time, and he actually came out of it with a, with a, with a shred of credibility. And Matt Hancock made him look an, like an amazing health, uh, education secretary. Um, I, I, I anticipate a cabinet reshuffle when we when uh, when we sort of as we come out of this pandemic, and I hope that the first decision John, Mr. Johnson makes is to eject Hancock from his position as soon as possible. So Matt Hancock for me. Hancock goes to be replaced with who? Williamson or Rob? I mean, God, no one wants that, surely. But uh, yeah, well, Neil, it's uh, he did say some extraordinary things this week in in his interviews. Rob, what, what, what's your take on this? I'd like to defend the health secretary, Richard. Go on. Uh, I fully accept from Neil that there's a bit of gaslighting going on that they should be thanked, but I don't think there was a national shortage of PPE. Because I think most of the national supply of PPE was in the docks at Felixstowe in some containers. So technically, if you take all the PPE that was in the country at the time, including the stuff that was unusable, both because it was in the containers at Felixstowe port or because it was unusable because basically it wasn't good enough for the NHS. Technically, he's sort of right, isn't he? Technically, he's right. Okay, yes. Technically, he is sort of right, Rob. Um, Arthur, what do you what do you make of it? Uh, sorry, I'm confused. Was that a defence of of the health secretary that you know we had we did have PPE only it was it was crap and you know locked away. Yeah, exactly, it was crap and locked away. That's exactly what I'm saying, Arthur. But technically, he's correct, <laughs> and I think we should at least acknowledge that probably he was telling the truth. Okay, okay, and we should thank him for it. Oh, no, Neil's basically right. He's a clown. Yeah. Okay, so that, well, that's important to put that on the record, everybody. So uh, thanks for clarifying that. Um, he does. He does have his Trumpian moments, doesn't he, Mister Hancock? Yeah, he was a bit clothiered, I think, with some of the things he said this week, to put it mildly. Um, and well, we've already talked about the the mess with the PPE and the contracts. Um, it's interesting. I just wonder if there's, you know, if there's much public anger about this. I, I, I'm not actually sure there is. You know, thinking of reading some of the, the stuff in the paper, um, you know, the country was facing a once in a century global pandemic. And yes, you know, they were struggling with the PPE shortage because it was a PPE shortage, obviously. And, and you know, so some contracts went up on a government procure website, procurement website two weeks after they should have done. Um, I mean, it's not a good look, but, you know, I guess Hancock could just say, well, the focus was on saving lives anyway. It's not a good look. Uh, I guess we have to wait for the uh, the public inquiry, won't we? Um, so, Rob, let's move on to you then. Who's had a bad week for you? Yeah, just before I do, I think I think you're right. I think the message is going to be, gosh, we've got the vaccine. We've done it quicker than everybody else. Let's not worry about these minor uh, minor details that we had uh, in 2020 when it was all awful and the fact that uh, people who we're now actually probably not going to give any more money to have worked their absolute socks off 
Uh, but let's not worry about that. Let's just say we've done a good job on the vaccine rollout and that's been great. And it has, you know, I, absolutely right. Uh, I think we should also just note before I before I give you my uh, good, my bad week, um, the prescription charge thing only applies to England, I think I'm right in saying, doesn't it? Uh, so it's English patients that are going to have to uh, fork out extra for um, for prescriptions. So uh, my bad week is for patients uh, who... Uh, because there's this report out this uh, week that pharmacist patient safety reports have plummeted by 43%. And this is the uh, the quarter three 2020 report from the NPA's medication safety officer. Uh, now, we all know why this is. You know, uh, pharmacists and their teams under increased workload and pressure due to the pandemic and um, may not be prioritising reporting of patient safety incidents although it acknowledges that other factors could be in play. I think that um, two or three things to say about this. I mean, patient safety reporting has been one of the stellar successes of pharmacy over the last few years. Uh, it certainly brought community pharmacy to the attention of um, NHS England and the patient safety team there, which Bruce Warner was one until not so long ago, a few years ago when he became deputy chief pharmacist. Uh, but it was a really good in into NHS England to show how pharmacists protect the public. Um, one thing I just think as a result of this, just it just occurs to me that it highlights yet again the fact that there's probably an IT challenge in the middle of all of this. It's quite difficult for uh, pharmacists to record a lot of what they do and to to you know keep checks on these things, that, which are essentially hygiene factors as far as the public are concerned. You know pharmacists doing the right thing and, and, and feeding back patient safety challenges that identify. Um, so, you know, it, it's the sort of thing that could do with pressure being kept up to improve the way that or improve the systems that pharmacists have access to, to, to keep uh, tabs on what's what they're finding and what they're seeing in their day to day work. So, you know, I think that's something that needs to be me thought about. And I'm sure that those reports will bounce back uh, over the next period. But just right now, we hope and pray that there's nothing um, that is being missed as a result of pharmacists being extremely busy on um, serving the public and therefore not really having time to to note the, the things that they are seeing day to day as they go through with their work. <laughs> So we've just time for a quick any other business. Uh, Neil, what have you got for us? Well, I did caught this week um, something caught my eye that was interesting. And uh, Dr. Fazana Hussain, who's a GP at the Project of Surgery in East London, and she works very closely with Jignesh Patel down there in East London, a fantastic pharmacist. And she um, emerged that she's she's going to call every single patient who's been offered a COVID uh, jab in the, in the area but hasn't accepted, hasn't taken one up. She's going to call them up to uh, try and sort of ask why they've not taken it up and try and, uh, uh, well, I suppose, encourage them to take it up. Uh, if she, I, I don't know what her phone bill would probably be quite big, but, uh, uh, um, yeah, fantastic dedication from uh, Dr. Fasana Hussain, if she can pull that off. Um, and uh, we all know about the, the, the hesitancy situation, particularly in black and minority ethnic um, communities, COVID vaccine, and uh, if she can... Play, do, do something in that area that would be fantastic so Fazana saying that caught my eye this week yeah that, that's amazing I mean Fazana is, is is a star as we all know but uh, yeah that's a, that's an incredible thing to do and but you know it's needed isn't it good, good on her I say um my any other business it, it's much more trivial than that it, it's it's one of these fake videos that's doing the rounds um, of Mark Drakeford first minister 
for Wales. Uh, uh, the video had him saying, in inverted commas, that uh, the Welsh Government, very pleased with the, the fight back against the pandemic and had enough headroom now to open up the pubs for the Wales-England game. Uh, but only if you have a substantial breakfast, uh, full fry-up, yes, beans on toast, no. I mean, it's a really convincing, still makes me laugh, convincing video. And I actually was believing it right up to the point when he referred to those oppressive English bastards, which uh, I thought was very funny. Um, come on, Wales, for Saturday. So that just about wraps things up for another week. Thank you to Rob, Neil and Arthur. All episodes of the pod are available on the Pharmacy Magazine website and from all your usual download sites. But for now, from all of us, thanks very much for listening. Uh-huh.